I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything, yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like, how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that (laughs) then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's, it's so real to this day. I, I I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? (laughs) We did it guys. The one that came out of nowhere. It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Hey, this is Eric with 30 by 40 Design Workshop with a heads up that all of my content will be streaming on Gable Media. Starting October 7th, you can head on over to gablemedia.com video to check it out. Hi everyone, my name is Steven and I am the creator of Show It Better. And I'm glad to announce that Show It Better is now streaming on Gable Media. Visit gablemedia.com video to catch up on our full catalog. Fire. Once harnessed, has been a valuable tool in human advancement and comfort. Uncontrolled, it is one of the most destructive forces on Earth. September 2020, I awoke to a reddish-brown haze that darkened the sky. An apocalyptic scene colored by a layer of ash hovering above from a collection of fires both 60 miles and over 500 miles away. Millions of acres of land burned across California, Oregon, and Washington. In California alone, more than 8,200 fires have burned well over 4 million acres in 2020, more than double the previous record. Record breaking wildfires are engulfing regions globally, destroying property and threatening humans and wildlife. In this episode, We'll explore the evolution of our relationship with fire, how we manage it, and what we could face in the future. This is Spaces Podcast. 
where we aim to elevate the appreciation and understanding of the spaces we occupy every day. Hello, my name is Demetrius, and you're listening to Spaces Podcast. In 2001, here in California, I remember going to school in October, and it was raining towards the end of the month and on and off through the rest of the year. Things began to change the following October, where it was the first time that I really remember a significant wildfire. A bunch of friends and I actually jumped in the car to see how close we could get to the fire. Don't do that. Since then, fires have gotten progressively worse, and it seems the environment is more and more ripe for a fire. So I wanted to put this episode together because we're living through record fires that have not been experienced in decades, and it's anticipated that it's going to even get worse. There are some things that we can do collectively to mitigate and potentially prevent some of the devastation that we're seeing today. But it is critical to understand that while these fires cause significant damage in the immediate site, there is dangerous impact on humans, wildlife, and the economy that reverberate beyond. Research suggests that wildfires are a major driver of greenhouse gas emissions and are also responsible for 5-8% to of the 3.3 million annual premature deaths from poor air quality. Wildfires can be defined simply as a type of uncontrolled fire, particularly spreading across wildlands. Some wildfires are started naturally, specifically by lightning. The rest are started by humans either accidentally, like at a gender reveal party, yeah, that really happened, or by arson. Causes can vary widely from region to region. For example, in the U.S., 84% of fires are started by humans while in Canada, 55% are started by lightning. Now, we still don't know the exact timing of when humans first discovered fire, but the oldest fire on record was about 420 million years ago, and the first extensive wildfire came somewhat later, dating from around 345 million years ago. The three main components needed for a fire, as you may know, are fuel, like dried vegetation, or our buildings, oxygen, and an ignition source. Interestingly, oxygen levels have to reach around 15% or more to feed a fire. The higher the oxygen level, the hotter the fire. Our oxygen level is about 21% today, which is why we smother a fire to extinguish it. The first human interaction with fire occurred 1.5 million years ago in Africa, which is presumed to be an opportunistic relationship for light, warmth, and protection from animals, where humans managed existing flames by adding fuel to conserve it or dung to slow it down. As humans developed over time, fire has been a part of that learning process. For centuries, Native Americans manage fire risk in woodlands through prescribed or intentional planned burning. However, the arrival of non-native settlers introduced foreign practices and the lack of understanding of the environmental conditions led to a decline in prescribed burning. As the land became more dominant by trees, which eventually died, 
regions were primed with two of the three necessary ingredients for fire. As more fuel was introduced, also in the form of buildings, infernos became common throughout history. In fact, nearly every major city in the world has been largely burnt to the ground at least once, and sometimes repeatedly. For example, Constantinople was burned at least five times between 406 and 1204 AD. These fires were often a result of war, poor construction techniques and materials, and the inability to fight large fires. In London, the fire of 1212, a much less well-known blaze than the later fire in 1666, was devastating, leaving as many as 3,000 people dead, many of whom were trapped on the engulfed London Bridge at the time, the bridge was made of highly flammable wood and unfortunately waterproofed with an even more flammable tar. This fire destroyed much of the area known as Southwark, leaving about a third of the city in ruins. This level of destruction and loss of life over the years finally led to a rapid advancement in the 19th century. We began to have significant advancements in firefighting techniques and technology. The first municipal fire brigade in the world was established in Edinburgh, Scotland. In the United States, the first practical fire engine was tested and the first salaried fire department was established in Cincinnati, Ohio in the 1850s. In addition, the first U.S. patent on an automatic fire alarm system was issued. Among the new technology of this period was the innovation of spraying water on a fire through a pipe with holes. The first system can be traced back as far as 1806 to John Carey of England. This concept eventually found its way over to North America led by James Francis in Lowell, Massachusetts. As fire prevention systems evolved, more and more versions became available, creating inconsistencies for design, installation, and performance. Simultaneously, a growing debate on the future of electricity between a young man named Thomas Edison and others like George Westinghouse would inadvertently pull in a young electrician named William Henry Merrill, subsequently leading to the refinement of fire safety standards. A bit random and confusing, I know. Let me explain. Edison's electrical systems operated on direct current, or DC, and Westinghouse's on alternating current, AC. AC is considered to be a greater hazard to life and property, four to five times more than DC. This debate between the two came to a head at the World's Fair of 1893 in Chicago, when, to Edison's dismay, Westinghouse obtained the lighting contract for the exposition. Within the exposition's spectacular palace of electricity, the proximity of untried electrical connections to a massive flammable facade was extremely concerning. Insurance companies were reluctant to risk the great loss that they predicted, and it put the exposition in danger of cancellation. These insurance companies brought in William Henry Merrill, who was a respected electrician from Boston. Merrill ultimately reviewed and assured the proper safeguards and the exposition went ahead as planned. 
He had previously conceived this idea of examining and testing such equipment for safety, and this opportunity allowed him to continue to develop his concept. His growing relationship with the fire insurance underwriters and electrical equipment manufacturers supported his testing laboratory, and it further evolved into a small group that were particularly concerned with the lack of standards and predictability of fire prevention systems. On November 6, 1896, the group established the National Fire Protection Association, or NFPA. Today, the NFPA delivers information and knowledge through codes and standards like NFPA 13, NFPA 70, and the National Electrical Code. They also provide research, training, education, outreach, and advocacy. However, advancements in knowledge and techniques couldn't keep up with the threat of fire at the time, which continued throughout the early 20th century, and sometimes at a great cost. In 1906, a combination of natural and man-made forces led to one of the largest catastrophes in American history, burning 25,000 buildings, over 490 city blocks, and leaving some 3,000 dead. Just before sunrise on April 18th, a massive earthquake hit San Francisco. In the emergency response, the capable fire chief, Dennis Sullivan, unfortunately lost his life in the initial quake, leaving the team without central leadership. The earthquake damaged buildings and water mains, but arguably even more damaging was a corrupt and unresponsive city government that diverted money intended for emergencies, leaving firefighters without proper equipment and training. Buildings were destroyed, but it's estimated that up to 50% were actually the result of the undertrained and directionless firefighters who demolished largely intact buildings with dynamite in an attempt to create fire breaks. Just 17 years later, Tokyo, Japan also encountered the combination of a massive earthquake and fire that swept through the rubble afterwards, resulting in a staggering death toll that some estimates place as high as 142,000. A unique combination of factors contributed to this devastation. The earthquake struck at lunchtime while many people were cooking, resulting in numerous fires which then spread rapidly due to high winds from a nearby typhoon off the coast. The wind and fire developed into firestorms, which swept across the city. On top of all of that, the quake created a tsunami, which added to the loss of life and destruction of about 570,000 homes, leaving a staggering 1.9 million people homeless. Back in the U.S., a series of studies, historic events, and legislation would soon give increased momentum to Congress and the President to enact new fire safety legislation. A 1959 report from the Committee on Fire Research of the National Research Council recommended a national program emphasizing those areas not adequately covered by current efforts of military and civil agencies. A 1966 report at the Wing Spread Conference on Fire Service Administration, Education, and Research called Statements of National Significance to the Fire Problem in the United States, stated that the traditional concept of fire protection being strictly a local responsibility 
needed to be re-examined. And the Apollo spacecraft fire in 1967 collectively furthered the conversation on fire safety. President Johnson went on to sign the Research and Safety Act of 1968, establishing a fire research and safety center, which conducted an extensive nationwide study and driven by its findings, on October 29, 1974, the National Fire Prevention and Control Administration was created when President Ford signed the Federal Fire Prevention and Control Act of 1974. To understand more about buildings and fire prevention knowledge and techniques, I wanted to speak with someone who had layered perspective on the relationship between fire and the built environment. Jeremy Carter from the Los Angeles City Fire Department is uniquely qualified to help with this conversation. He has a background in construction, coming from a family of general contractors, carpenters, and he himself was an electrician. When I took up electrical construction from the ground up, we did lots of strip malls in the high desert, all the way down to San Pedro. We did Carlos Jr., Jack in the Box from the ground up. For the LA City Fire Department, he worked as a firefighter paramedic for 12 years, a fire inspector for the last five years, and recently a building plans examiner. How would you describe fire-rated construction? So the easiest way to explain what fire-rated construction is, is there's different levels, which we start off at 5B. That is just the bare minimum wood frame construction. As it gets higher and the number goes down, so we're talking 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, and when you hit 1, that's your highest rating. All in between, we give you our rating. So if I tell you to upgrade your construction from 5B to 5A, that's going to give me a one-hour rating. So that means before that whole building takes off in fire and becomes completely engulfed, I should have at least one hour before that happens. And then it continues to go up. I can go to 4B, and that means, well, now I'm going to get an hour and a half, so I'll, I'll have drywall on it or I'll have two layers of drywall to give me two hours. I'll have certain door frames and door hinges that give me our different hour ratings. So fire-rated construction is basically how much time have we been allotted before that building will become completely engulfed in fire. And I'm sure it's pretty obvious, uh, but for those that may not pick it up, why is it? why is that so important for a firefighter? Before I get to the fire department aspect, let's just talk about it from as a homeowner. You want that fire-rated construction because if you don't have any fire-rated construction, that means your property could go up in flames in a matter of minutes. Heaven forbid we have a delay getting to that fire. So if we can, can if it's maintained and checked because of that fire rating, then that gives you time. And when we start talking about time, that's what we think about. How long has this fire been burning prior to us actually getting on scene to start fighting fire? Because not only are we going to try to go in the front door to put that fire out, we're going to have guys on the roof, as you know. We use our aerial ladders to ventilate. So, okay, we think about it. This is normal 5D construction. I don't have a full hour. And if we think about a lot of our occupancies now, we don't have drop ceilings. Everything is at 
open field. So you can see your pipe chases. You can see the wood right up into the ceiling. Only thing separating me from outside is a layer of wood, some sheathing, and shingles. The things that are going through our mind, obviously, is it put the fire out, but it's risk versus gain. How much am I going to risk to save this building? And what am I going to gain by saving it? As Jeremy mentioned, fire-rated construction all comes down to time. Throughout a building, there are various areas and components that are critical to protect in order to ensure a building will provide the anticipated amount of time, including, but not limited to, walls, fire stops, which are seals around openings, penetrations, and between joints, shaft enclosures, partitions, smoke barriers, floors, and fire-resistive coatings and sprayed fire-resistant materials that are applied to structural members and fire-resistant joint systems. When designing a building, there are resources available like the USG Corporation, for example, that provide information for published fire, sound, and structural data covering systems designed and constructed according to its published specifications. These companies test products and construction assemblies to meet performance requirements of established test procedures specified by various agencies. These assemblies consist of wall types, floor and ceilings, roof and ceiling, structural members, exterior walls, and penetrations, which can all vary to change the amount of time before that building is consumed by a fire. More recently, construction methods like mass timber construction are being explored for its various benefits, fire resistance being one of them. During a fire resistance test of a 5-ply cross-laminated timber, or a CLT, panel wall, the panel was subjected to temperatures exceeding 1800 degrees Fahrenheit and lasted 3 hours and 6 minutes, far more than the 2-hour rating that the building code requires. Typically, when going through the plan review process with your local jurisdiction, the building department and building officials scrutinizes the construction documents for adherence to the building code regarding life and fire safety. The fire department also reviews the plans for fire safety, but through their lens, to identify elements pertinent to helping them effectively do their job. Number one, make sure your address is correct. That's the first thing that we're going to do when we're trying to make not just firefighting efforts, but medical calls. We want you to have the right address on the right side of the street. And where's that address side in relation to the openings, to the entrance into that given occupancy? From there, when you're talking about residential, that's pretty much it. Address and a driveway to get in. Once you get in that driveway, if we talk about our San Fernando Valley, Woodland Hills, Van Nuys area, if you're familiar with those areas, they have very, very deep lots. Some of those lots can be four or 500 feet deep. So now, once I figured out that the address is correct, now how deep is the lot and what are they trying to do on this lot? One of the major things that plan review is doing now is accessory dwelling units or accessory living quarters. Those, they will try to put multiple on their lots. Some can be attached to the house, and then they can also have detached accessory dwelling units. So we want to see how far back they are. 
once you start getting beyond 150 feet from the curbside, now that's where my plan review, I can start to ask you for more things. And by asking you for more things, I revert back to fire rate of construction. Now I'm going to tell you, you know what? No, this is kind of far back. We could have some issues accessing it. Let me have you upgrade this construction from 5B to 5A. Give me a little bit more time. Give yourself some time also. Beyond fire rated construction, now I can say, you know what? You probably want to sprinkle this occupancy. Because if you notice in the past, and with the fire code and building code, if your primary residence isn't sprinkled, well, you can put an accessory dwelling on it, and it doesn't have to be sprinkled. But if there are circumstances that warrant it, then I can have you upgrade that part of your construction to put sprinklers in. It gets compounded when we start to talk about duplexes, very large single-family dwellings. When these single-family dwellings are in what we call the very high fire hazard severity zone, basically our brush fire areas. From there, we're talking high-rises. Believe it or not, we have tons of high-rises in the plans in downtown Los Angeles. So when I'm in commercials and high-rises, now I'm looking for your fire department connections, your fire control room, your stairwells, all that stuff goes into a plan review. Keep in mind that the firefighters out in the field, they don't have the technical knowledge that your architect or your designer has or that I have. So my job is to make it consistent for them so they know, okay, if I go in here, this is the address side, I should find an entrance right near this address somewhere. Or this is the address side, the fire department connection should be within 100 feet, 150 feet of a hydrant on that address side. When I go in that entrance, I know within 100 feet, 50 feet, I should find a fire control room. I should find a stairwell that takes me all the way to the roof. Now we can teach a rookie firefighter right out of the drill tower things to expect that will be standard and consistent with any high rise you go to from the valley to San Pedro. Any residence you go in, we tell you to take 150 feet of pose because typically we only let you go 150 feet back because we know we can reach the front door of that unit and start fighting fire. That consistency and ease of training makes so much sense, especially when you think back to stories like the 1906 San Francisco fire. When remodeling an existing building, there are some different things to consider. Every situation is going to be different. We don't have too much concern unless you start altering your access points. That's when we want to know, okay, you got to be a little bit more detailed in your plans because what seems simple to your architect or designer or that building owner isn't. Because now you change possibly where your address should be located because you moved your entrance. Also, there's interior remodels and then there's that major remodel. So when we start thinking of your major remodels, that's when we revert back to, okay, yeah, they left one wall standing or 50% up, but do they actually need to sprinkler this whole occupancy now? Because now we have what was 
2,400 square feet. Now we have 5,500 square feet, 10,000 square feet. And that's where we get into not a battle, but we need for developers, architects, designers to see what we see. It's not that we want them to spend more money on a project, but we have to think about safety. And then consistency. If we allow this to keep going on and don't do anything to upgrade construction or to make it safer with sprinklers, everybody in the city is going to do the same thing. And we will be a part of the problem. And there are certain building types that can add a lot of complexity to firefighting. Some people nowadays, they don't want to have their actual hotel lobby on the ground floor. They want it to be commercial. So now it's like, okay, how do I get to the stairwell if it's all commercial around the building? Where's the entrances? How do we decipher where we're going to go or where we're going to respond? Are we going to have multiple fire control panels that's going to read where we have a smoke detector going off or where the actual fire alarm or sprinkler head is going off? In addition to residential lobbies. So you have a residential lobby, you have a hotel lobby, which is which? Which one of those two is going to have the main address? Which one of those two has that special stairwell that we want to get to right off the bat to go all the way up? In addition to that, I'm going to go back to marijuana industry. You recall a very major fire. Quite a few firefighters are burned because of product being stored in an illegal fashion. We want it to be legal. We want it to be safe. Not only the safety of the fire department, everybody says, oh, the fire department, but remember, we're looking out for those citizens, civilians. That's our goal, to make sure you're safe. Because we're going to risk a lot to save your life. So get on the same page with us. Talk to us. Uh, the advent or what we're seeing is micro high rises. They are high rises by definition, but they don't take up a city block. They're very slender in nature. So we don't have the access like we normally would. There's no alleys that per se we would want a fire department connection because we're not going to access it. We're not going to go back there and use it. So there's a lot of things that are come into play, and that's just a hot topic with high-rise construction right now. As I mentioned early on, we are in the midst of record-breaking fires globally. A new video from NASA provided a glimpse of global wildfire trends over the past two decades, showing where fires have intensified due to agricultural practices, including in Africa and Southeast Asia, and climate change. It also shows longer-term trends, including the rapid expansion of agriculture into tropical forests in Central Africa and Indonesia over the past two decades, and an increase in the severity of fires in the Northern Hemisphere. On an average day in August, satellites typically detect 10,000 actively burning fires around the world, 70% of which are in Africa. While there are regional upticks in certain parts of the world, scientists also realize that the number of total square kilometers burned globally each year has actually dropped roughly 25% since 2003. So there are two interesting trends happening. 
but this drop has largely been due to the population growth and development in grasslands and savannas, as well as to the increase in the use of machines to clear farmlands. According to the U.S. National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA, the combined land and ocean temperature has increased at an average rate of 0.07 degrees Celsius or 0.13 degrees Fahrenheit per decade since 1880. However, the average rate of increase since 1981 is more than twice as great. Now if you recall, fuel is one of the three components for a fire, and with the decline in prescribed burning and more trees and brush that ultimately dry in warm temperatures, we now find ourselves in increasingly precarious situations, only missing the one brief instance of a spark to ignite a fire. In California, 14 of the 20 largest wildfires on record have occurred over the past 15 years. At the same time, the western U.S. has experienced some of its warmest temperatures on record, with 10 of the past 15 years among the 15 warmest years on record. So we've reached a tipping point where there's a lot of fuel and temperatures priming our environment for a destructive blaze for longer periods of time, increasing what we know as fire season. Experts predict that in a warming world, like the ones burning recently, will be even more common. Studies have shown that in addition to becoming more frequent, Climate change will likely make such blazes more destructive, which carries enormous environmental, financial, and health consequences for communities most at risk. Jeremy specifically had advice for property owners regarding this. If you look at what's going on with all these fires, if you live in an area that you're not sure you're in a very high fire hazard zone, come talk to us because you could be the difference in a fire not happening and a fire spreading and burning acres and acres of property and land. Brush clearance is very important. You can't change the seasons or the weather, but it's just the enforcement. We try very hard to get compliance when it comes to brush clearance prior to a Santa Ana wind, a heat wave coming because that's the one thing we can't control. Each of the owners can do the brush clearance, then let us deal with the elements that we can't control, or the mistakes, or unfortunately the intentional things that happen that create these fires. Think about not only your brush clearance behind your property or around your property, think about what you have right on your property, that tree that even though it's not in the brush clearance zone, are those limbs dead? Could an ember fly from across a highway, across your neighbor's yard, and have that dead tree or those limbs take off, and now we have a huge fire. So look at your actual property, because we do inspections on your multi-residential properties, but as far as the actual residents in the backyard, we don't go into your private property unless it's warranted. And we can only see what's visible to the eye if we're looking behind the property in that brush clearance zone and we happen to see that tree or that bush 
or that old gazebo that's there and it's dried out. We want to help out. We don't want to be the heavy hand of the fire department. But we also want you to not have to deal with a severe fire. To combat this potential destruction, there are a few things we can do to mitigate loss of property and life. Sound fire-resistant building design and construction methods using some of the techniques, materials, and resources that have been mentioned. Reevaluate national and statewide land management strategies, which could include expanding prescribed burning, and take on personal responsibility to clear brush on your property and in your community to reduce fire hazards ahead of peak fire seasons. As a tip, there are outreach campaigns such as Firewise USA that help individual homeowners and communities reduce their wildfire risk and better protect themselves. We have largely gotten overconfident when it comes to fire. However, over the last decade, we have been shown just how quickly it can become uncontrollable if not respected. So remember, fire has been on Earth for 420 million years. We must relearn to live with it, because it clearly will continue to burn well after we're gone. That's all for this episode, but keep listening for a sneak peek of our next episode. This show is part of the Gable Media Network. You can check out similar content at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. You can help support what we're doing here by leaving a five-star rating and a review on your preferred podcasting app. It helps others find us, and your support is the only way that this show grows. And don't forget to connect with us through our Facebook community, Instagram, and see the random thoughts and articles that we share on Twitter and LinkedIn. But before you go, next time on Spaces Podcasts. So if you go into the Crow Island School, which still exists and is really, you know, a gorgeous, like early modernist building, you'll see that all of the doorknobs are lower than usual because they're kind of set for like a five-year-old's hand height. You'll see that there's like a chair rail along the wall at the same level. And above that are wooden walls that like are still original to the building, you know, completed in 1940. And those walls were made to tack up student work. So like all around the school, you see that the architects have like made this space for children to display their work all the time. In the auditorium, the benches are actually graduated in size so Hmm. that the little kids can touch the ground when they're sitting on the benches (laughs) in the front of the auditorium. And as you get older, you move towards the back and the benches get bigger. So, you know, everything was designed to be child-centric rather than teacher-centric. And thank you again for spending some time with us. Talk soon.
Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLamey, FAIA, former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise, from 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm.